Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Director of Outreach at the Naval Institute. Joining me is my usual co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Deputy Editor of Proceedings Magazine. Bill, hey, Ward, how's happy it going? Wednesday. It's ha- going happy great. Wednesday. Yes, yes. Um, so a lot going on in the current event space. Uh, a lot has happened since our, the last show last last Wednesday. Um, the first thing I wanted to talk about is uh, Korea. This morning there were some tweets about the B-1 and B-1 is doing nighttime tanking now. There was a very cool picture um, that somebody posted on Twitter of a, of a B-1 tanking off of a, a KC-135 at night, um, kind of an ominous photo. Um, so let's, let's talk about what uh, I'll talk as a, a mission planner and a, a, a mission lead, and you talk as an intel officer about what the first wave of a conventional strike would look like, because I think we're underestimating the capability of the North Koreans with respect to weathering that. So the first thing I wanted to point out, and I did this on Twitter this morning, is the B-1 was designed for a Cold War scenario, which is to say it was supposed to come in low, nap of the earth under the radar, and drop a string of conventional bombs. Um, So current generation integrated air defenses, IADs, have rendered that tactic very stupid. In fact, if we do that, B-1 crews will be the first POWs of the war. Um, So just to remind our audience, because our audience is learned, um, the B-1 didn't start off as a nuke bomber. It's not a nuke bomber. It also didn't start off as a precision-guided bomber. It's kind of gone, uh, become one the same way the Tomcat became one, which is you strap on a lantern pod, and, you know, I mean, if you put JDAM in something, everything can be a, 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 sp- a smart bomber. But, um, you know, that, that conventional strike warfare would be uh, probably an IADS rollback where you take, you know, you're, you're, you're taking your growlers and, and T-LAMs and going after the, the hard SAM sites. Um, and then you'd have to go in there with sort of a rolling CAD thing where, like we did in Bosnia, you had prowlers. That was our CAD asset back then. But you'd have to have growlers in company with Super Hornets and other strike warfare assets. Um, but the North Koreans are not the Taliban. This would be a little more complicated. What What do you think of from an intel point of view when you think about the first, uh, you know, phase of a conventional war against North Korea? Well, the most difficult thing about it, I think, is making an impact, a significant impact on on North Korea's ability to strike South Korea before it can do that. And uh, and almost as far as I know, there there's no scenario where U.S. Uh, air power, uh, JDAMs, B-1s, B-2s, no matter what you're dropping and from what platform you're dropping, that you can hit all of the or even a significant number of the uh, very powerful North Korean uh, artillery uh, positions that are uh, arranged arranged around Seoul or within uh, artillery range of Seoul. So you've got 155s uh, raining down on Seoul uh, within minutes uh, of when uh, an initial strike happens. So the ability to decapitate and stop North Korea's ability to inflict really heavy casualties on a major capital, uh, you know, of the world. Uh, a major economic city of the world uh, is nil, right? So um, 
and that you know that was pointed out by uh, Colin Powell last week uh, when we had him here at the uh, the Naval History uh, Symposium conference at the Naval Academy. Uh, the, the topic was the proper role of the military in politics, uh, but uh, Bob Woodward was asking some questions about some you know, current events, and Woodward was pointing out that there seemed to be a drumbeat among many people in Washington right now for war in, on the Korean Peninsula. And Colin Powell was uh, you know, giving his opinion and his, uh, I think, sage guidance, which was uh, two things you know, struck, struck me in his comments. One is... Uh, North Korea knows that if it ever uses a nuke, it will be erased from the planet, period, right? Uh, North Korea might have 10, 15, 20, 30 nukes, um, but it, it's no match for the nuclear arsenal of the United States. And North Korea understands that if, if it were to ever use a nuclear weapon, it would be erased, period, end, over, right? Um, however, uh, the other point that he made is that North Korea learned uh, and it, you know, many, many people have written about this fact that the North Korean leader learned the lesson of Gaddafi and of Saddam Hussein that they did not have nukes and so they are no longer in power, right? The United States turns it, its boresight on uh, the, the Muammar Gaddafi regime in Libya uh, and, you know, he, he's no longer in power. There's he's no, no value in playing nice. He's no that's longer alive. That's the lesson, right? right? I mean, that's the lesson right. of history. Saddam Hussein is no longer alive. The, yeah. The uh, uh, the axis of evil uh, that George W. Bush you know mentioned in, in about 2002 uh, included three countries right Iran, uh, North Korea, and uh, and Iraq. Uh, the country that was the closest to having a nuclear arsenal, uh, which was North Korea, sped up its program and built n nuclear weapons. The country that was uh, second closest. Uh, Iran started to speed up and then now is under this uh, JICPOA, this uh, international six-party agreement. Uh, the country that was the, the furthest away from having a nuke ended up being invaded by the United States and no longer has the leader at the time and has no, no nuclear program. So Colin Powell was pointing out that, that uh, Kim Jong-un uh, and his father uh, learned from that, right? And so their takeaway is you got to have a nuclear weapon. You can't use it, but you got to have it or else your, your regime is probably not long for the world uh, given the U.S. power. Um, so Colin Powell's point was, okay, you're not going to prevent North Korea from having, they already have nuclear weapons, um, but you need to send a very strong message that if they ever use them, they will be erased, period. And then everything else is kind of you handle differently once you've accepted that. And, uh, you know, Sandy Winnefeld, the former vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs, member of our board, uh, wrote a similar comment uh, in July and proceedings today, um, basically saying, hey, w the world needs to get used to the fact that North Korea has nuclear weapons. Um, we're not going to deter them from developing them. They've already developed them. We're not going to get uh, Kim Jong-un to give them up because he learned the same lesson uh, that, that uh, General Powell pointed out. Um, so that's kind of the reality, in, in, you know, as I see it. And so the idea of posturing B-1s and flying them over the Korean Peninsula, I, I don't personally see the value of that. That's just me. Yeah. Um, another current events topic just happened in the last 24 hours, or at least came to light in the last 24 hours, is uh, Skipper of McCain uh, has been fired. Um, and uh, there was a finding, a headline that said... Uh, the mishap could have been prevented, which is sort of a no-brainer because, as we've pointed out, 
uh, earlier today here in Beach Hall among each other. The Naval Safety Program, the Naval Safety Center is built, you know, it was built in the mid-50s around the premise that all mishaps are preventable. You know, you just have to identify the chain of events and at what point could a mishap have been stopped. So the fact that the McCain mishap was preventable is not in and of itself a headline. Um, but there are other things coming to light uh, and we're going to talk in a few minutes about a proceedings article uh, that, that deals with the, the state of the SWO community. Um, but what else has come to light uh, recently around that particular topic? Yeah, so the CEO and the XO of the McCain both relieved today. It was I found it interesting that the uh, uh, unlike the Fitzgerald, where the top three, CEO, XO, and Command Master Chief, were relieved. In this case, so far, just the CEO and the XO have been relieved, uh, both last names Sanchez, by the way, Commander Sanchez's. Um, Not dirty Sanchez. So, That's uh, their call sign, right? I, I guarantee you, if they were aviators, that they, would be their call sign. If they were you know this is true. If they were aviators, there'd be two of them, right? <laughs> uh, it's like, but, right, but, Bell, you know, remains, Taco, Soup, Campbell. Exactly. You know, you've read the book. Remains you know what's to be, up. Remains to be seen yeah. if the if the CMC is going to be relieved uh, okay. for cause as well. But, uh, you know, as you so said— So we don't know why the CMC was not relieved in this don't, case? Don't know yet. I don't know if that's just another shoe waiting to drop or not. Um but, you know, as you said, uh, the, the Seventh Fleet report that uh, the, the public affairs address uh, that said that they had been relieved, you know, pointed out that they were relieved because this incident was deemed preventable. And that, you know, that's the way the Navy looks at safety. It's that all incidents, uh, collisions, crashes, you know, you name it, are, are preventable. And, and that's why we have the methodologies that we have across the Navy to prevent uh, mishaps. It doesn't always work, um, and usually when it doesn't work, it's because somebody, some, not just one person, but usually multiple people have made mistakes that have combined to create a significant incident. Um, so, uh, well, then in the uh, quadruple threat that is the Naval Institute's um, product suite, um, we have a item that's on the uh, USNI blog today that's timely. You know, I mean, here we are talking about nuclear war, but let's talk about what's really important, and that's NFL players kneeling during the national anthem and the VP walking out of the Colts game. So uh, our good friend George, Commander George Capon wrote this piece, Disrespecting Soldiers, Flag, or Anthem, uh, that, that went live yesterday on the USNI blog, um, that brings up some pretty interesting points. So uh, what is it that he says here, basically? So... Uh George's basic uh, comment is uh, is that um, you know not everybody agrees with uh, the, the actions by the the vice president um, and well and soldiers aren't one thing right soldiers right? aren't one thing um, and that uh, uh, the, the the U.S. anthem doesn't define you know ideas of right and wrong and the idea of uh, protesting is enshrined in the Constitution right and so we. Uh, as members of the military, we don't swear an oath to the anthem. We don't swear an oath to the uh, the president or to the, the flag. We swear an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States, which enshrines the right to protest. Uh, and, you know, he, uh, he builds on uh, a comment that, again, at last week's conference, uh, history conference, where former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Admiral Mullen, um, said something similar to that. He basically said, uh, you know, I, I don't personally agree about, uh, you know, not standing for the national anthem or saluting the flag, but I salute 
those or I recognize the right of those who choose to take a knee. Um, and that's what I fought for. There, that's why I served. Uh, I served to protect the right of people to disagree um, you know, and protest peacefully. So this struck me at the Navy Air Force game on Saturday, right? So they play the national anthem um, beforehand. And, um, you know, when I hear the, the strains to get all music on it, um, I'm moved, right? I mean, it, I, 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 I have visions of those who I served with who are no longer with us, of America as an overall concept and, and that sort of thing. So I don't stand because there's an obligation or some sort of social stigma like, you know, maybe some people go to church just to be seen. Um, I stand because I love what that song represents and I'm proud of the country. Um, now, if the guy next to me doesn't feel that way i would hate to think that he's standing because he's afraid of what you know the the society would think or for some other insincere disingenuous reason um so and i tweeted this yesterday as well i you know i stand during the anthem the fact that for instance nfl players are kneeling doesn't anger me it makes me sad you know and so i, I don't discount whatever their beef is you know, and, and so if you go so far as to draw attention to yourself in that way, salary notwithstanding, um, I, you know, there's something that needs to be addressed here in terms of the health of, of the republic. Um, so I think some of the initiatives or some of the way that it's coming down from on high feels like a forced march and we're not getting to root cause. So, again, I, I think my... You know, I, I, I've walked the walk of of service in my adult life. Um, I don't think I have anything to prove in terms of my love of country. Um, but I don't want the guy next to me standing up for other than the reason, or girl standing up for other than the reason that they feel moved and, and respectful during the course of the national anthem. So um, there's a great final line in... Uh, this piece um, in, in Commander Capon's piece on the USNI blog that is, uh, there is no superior race, nor is there any superior group of Americans. And I think that's a good sentiment. Um, and bravo to the USNI blog for, uh, for publishing that item. Yeah, so far about 10,000 people in less than 24 hours have read that piece online. Uh, it had a Facebook reach of over 60,000. Uh, so it's definitely getting a lot of attention, comments uh, supportive of it and, and uh, you know, supportive of the position that uh, Vice President Pence took. So, uh, you know, there's, there's strong feelings on this issue. Uh, as a boss of mine used to say, sometimes uh, uh, the strength of people's feelings is disproportionate to the, to the actual value of the issue that we're talking about. You know, as, as we led off talking about, uh, uh, you know, what to do about North Korea, which is you know, really a significant issue, um, and and but but the one that's getting more attention uh, on our website and really in the news is whether NFL players you know stand or, or kneel during the uh, the national anthem. So, so we we have history today uh, here in the studio. We do. Yeah. We do. So uh, today we have our first guest on the proceedings podcast, uh, Lieutenant Brendan Cordial, U.S. Navy, active duty, uh, an author for Proceedings and Proceedings Today. 
Uh, Brendan is a surface warfare officer who was a professor of naval science at uh, George Washington University and now is on the OPNAV staff working resourcing issues for, uh, for surface combatants. And Brendan wrote a piece about uh, how there are too many SWOs, surface warfare officers, junior officer SWOs uh, on ships uh, that we published in March that I think now is uh, a prescient piece given the problems that we've seen and, and everyone is talking about in the surface fleet. Um, and then he recently wrote a piece uh, which I, I just admire because uh, while many people were still focused on the, the negatives and the problems that the Fitzgerald and the McCain have shown, uh, Brendan looked at it and said, okay, what can I take from this and how do I turn this into a positive for my bridge watch teams as I go back to sea. Uh, and, and that was a very positive piece we published on Proceedings Today about uh, two weeks ago. So, uh, Brendan, welcome to Beach Hall. Welcome to the Naval Institute. And, and let's uh, also say that Brendan is not here as a DOD spokesman, although he's no. on the OPNAV staff. He's here just like everybody uh, who contributes to the forum. Um, so we'll just get that out to make, make everybody plenty comfortable. Um, so, Brendan, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. Gentlemen, <clears throat> thank you very much. It's a, it's a great pleasure and a distinct honor, you know, this podcast. You bet it is. Long Hell story, yeah. You know, future ahead of it. So uh, it's great, 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 great to be here. I appreciate it. So uh, let's talk about uh, the state of surface warfare um, in the wake of some of the Seventh Fleet issues. Let's just give it that label. Um, so I, I don't know if it was the last show or the show before we were talking about the item that was uh, in proceedings today that the, the one commander uh, basically said, look, we got it, you know, leave us alone. It was a little bit of a rah-rah item, and he got some some criticism um, from the pundits, the, the uh, NATSEC or the naval expert pundits, um, about being maybe a little too sanguine, uh, a little bit too optimistic. Um, but my heart goes out to the active duty force with respect to this pressure that comes during these these sorts of times where the graybeards like me and Bill suggest that the Navy isn't as good as it once was, right? And, and, and I don't think that's fair um, to those who are making a go out of making it great. And that's sort of the thesis of your, I, your piece is what can we do right now? So what are some of those things that, <clears throat> that come to mind? Yes, sir. Uh, I think I'll, I'll preface with... Uh you know, I wrote the, the initial piece in March, which is before a lot of this stuff happened. And there are, I think, some substantive uh, inefficiencies or, uh, if that's the right term, about how the Navy, the surface Navy was going about training its, you know, essentially its junior, its junior officers, ultimately commanding officers. And it's the, the, the point of the too many swoes wasn't that, you know, everyone loves shipmates. But we have a, uh, since the early 2000s, a largely on-the-job training uh, model of developing junior officers and <clears throat> essentially in a finite uh, training time is a finite resource, right? You only get underway so often, you only do so many unreps, you only have so much bridge watch standing time. And if you're going to, you know, inundate the fleet with junior officers, then necessarily each individual's training time is going to decrease. So what year group are you? I'm 2011. So did you go through bricks and mortar swaths or did you do so, BDOC or what was your so path? I was, I was pre-BDOC. Uh, I went to the ship right out of school, and then uh, a few months after that, went to something called SWAS Intro, which was in Norfolk, so the fleet concentration areas, and I believe it was four weeks. And then before uh, you went 
for your SWO qualification about a year and a half to two years in. Uh, you would send, they'd send everybody to Newport for two weeks. It was either two or three weeks up in Newport. Uh, you had to get, you know, complete that curriculum, and then you'd go back to the ship, and the CO would qualify you. So when you stepped aboard the ship, did you feel prepared the first time? Oh, no, sir. <laughs> yeah, not even close. But, but I mean, you know, so yes and no. Uh, uh, I mean, from a leadership perspective, obviously, you don't, you know, you're in charge of a bunch of sailors for the first time. So I don't know how anybody could go and feel all that prepared, you know, yeah. right away for that. Right. Uh, and then, you know, the, 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 the qualification pipeline is progressive. So, you, you know, they start you out slow and then you learn. Uh, you know, if you were a pilot taking the stick for the first time, would you feel, you know, competent or whatever? I don't know. Uh, but it's definitely, it's definitely a progress. You don't, you don't, I, di I didn't feel like I should be um, officer the deck the day I stood on, stood on board. So that's the, that's the question, no, sir. Okay. Uh, so you were an ROTC grad from Notre Dame, correct? Yes, sir. That's correct. So um, did, did any of your SWO training before you got to the ship, or as you said, you went to uh, Newport for a few weeks, did, did any of that time include uh you know underway time on like a yp uh so no sir so for rotc there's no yps at least when i went through and i'm pretty sure there there isn't it's only at the naval academy uh, you go on summer cruise and so when you're a midshipman on summer cruise uh you get notionally some bridge watch standing time yeah uh but the aforementioned there's too many jails up there anyway and so now you're a new midshipman trying to right. compete for right. con right. time right. essentially it's not all that good of a, a spot yeah. to be in so your too many swoes article that was in the march issue of proceedings if i remember correctly you um you, you talked about the fact that in like the early 2000s uh, a, a ticonderoga class cruiser had about 14 or 15 junior officers like you know uh, division uh, officers <clears throat> and and then by the time you wrote that piece uh, this past winter it was up. It was the number had doubled. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So uh, I didn't know it at the time I wrote it, but I've since uh, that phenomenon is called over execution. And so given the Navy, the surface Navy's poor retention numbers, which historically has been about, you know, 30, 30 percent plus or minus a little bit. Uh, <clears throat> the surface Navy has made the conscious decision to purposefully overman their ships. So there might be 15 spots. You know, they do the calculation on what jobs do we need division officers to do. We come up with 15 different you know, viable jobs. Uh, the over execution is, is they'll put 20, 25, 30 JOs understanding that to get enough department heads yeah. and you're only going to have 30% retention. You got to shovel everybody in so that the numbers equal out on the back end. Uh, and so that, that uh, you know, that, and that it gets to the point we, we talked about a couple weeks ago uh, where a number of people have now written, and, and one of the analogies that, that folks are using, and you, you just kind of brought it up, that uh, there's only a certain amount of underway time, right? There's, there's only, uh, you know, a certain number of hours that, that ship is underway, nighttime ops, daytime ops, complicated or uncomplicated, uh, steaming in, uh, you know, a crowded sea or an uncrowded sea, underway replenishment, et cetera. Uh, and the, the aviation community, you know, aviators have a logbook, and that logbook, logs all those things right N night takeoffs night traps day takeoffs day traps uh you know refueling on a you know s3 refueling on a kc-135 refueling all that type of stuff but the SWO community has not had essentially a log book so that you could compare you know a surface warfare officer uh who just came off of this ship versus this ship 
and your piece uh, in March talked a lot about the timing, that if you hit the ship at the right time when workups was starting, you could come out, come away from that year and a half on that particular DDG or whatever kind of ship it was with a lot of experience. But if your timing was terrible and you were assigned to that ship just after it came back from deployment, uh, as it was going into a, a, an availability, a maintenance availability, you may have most of your time with no under, t you know, no underway time. N you know, you're not putting any hours in your logbook essentially for your OOD call. Uh, and so the, you could compare two division officers coming off of two year and a half long tours as surface warfare officers, and it could be night and day the amount of experience, di the experience differential, right between those two. Yes, sir. So, <clears throat> really. The, the core is that the service Navy adopted a practically all, all on-the-job training model for qualifying and training, the, uh, particularly on the Mariner side, skills for the junior officers. Uh, that is very difficult to do given the, the, the amount of junior officers and the finite amount of uh, special evolutions, et cetera. So you're, you're setting your, the system is set up to either be uh, essentially just arbitrary, and the, the, the timing pays, plays a lot into it. And what's dangerous, and I don't, you know, so I have no insight into what the actual causes of the collisions were, uh, but it is, it is not unrealistic to think that you, you know, commanding officer X on the ship now who, you know, didn't get to go to BDOC and was on a very full wardroom, you spend most of your deck watch standing time as a division officer because you stand uh, TAO and combat, combat information center as a department head. So you go from a ensign lieutenant JG, you know, your first four years, that you need to get the mo most of your deck watch standing experience prior to becoming commanding officer will be in those four years. And then you're going to wait 13 years before you become the CO. Uh, honestly, that system, if you're going to rely so heavily on OJT in the first four years, it would make sense to me that you would try to leverage as much individual watch standing time on the future CEOs as you can. And if you're yeah. set up kind of arbitrarily, you know, you get you get there in the shipyard, you know, you don't stand watch for two years, yeah. but your fit rep says you're awesome, right? Because maybe you did, right. you, you know, you have to you have to bloom where you're planted, right? So you you do what you can, and your your CEO gives you the thumb up, and you do well, and you progress normally. So it's not that individual's fault uh, by any means, and maybe he'll do awesome, but just systemically, if we're trying to train, you know, the surface navy is very CO centric and dependent necessarily because the, the warship is the unit. Uh, we want that individual, when they're in command, to be as experienced as as he or she can be. And I don't think right now they're doing that as effectively as they could. So what are some of the basics that could be uh, either radically overhauled or tweaked with respect uh, to I that? I mean, so, so, so I am, you know, the, the over-execution piece, so purposefully trying to solve your retention problems by having a super huge number of accessions uh, is one very expensive uh, right, because that's that many more scholarships you have to give out. That's that many more midshipmen you have to accept at the Naval Academy. Uh, so that's very that's very expensive, right? So there there could be, you know, there's different pots of money for a lot of things, right? But I mean, uh, you could try to improve the quality of life on the ship. Uh, you could offer different incentives for staying on. Uh, you could, <clears throat> you know, imp implement more. Because uh, you might not get more steamy hours, right? But improved simulators, more available simulators. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different things you could do to try to make, instead of trying to fix the the retention issue on the front end, trying to retain more. So if you can go from, say, retaining 30% to 50% or 45%, then... Uh, then you don't have to double stuff the wardroom. Yeah, you don't with, have to double with, stuff with the wardroom. Right. And I think kind of a, a second order effect, which, uh, you know, kind of the phenomenon that will happen is that 
uh, you'll either lean too much on the guys who show early promise, right? So the you know the CEO doesn't want to he wants to get through his turf successfully too, right? And you find a guy who gets up there, and he is proficient at standing a watch. He's good ship handler, and then you'll get kind of a varsity mindset up on the bridge. So every time you do a special evolution, it's the same set of folks uh, standing bridge, standing the standing watch on the bridge, uh, which is beneficial for the individual stand on the watch because he gets a lot of experience, but uh, say that person goes home, he doesn't stick around. So essentially all that experience has been wasted and the people who weren't on the varsity team, you know, they're like, well, you know, this, what am I going to try my hardest for? It's kind of, it's just, it's, it's, it's potentially discouraging. Uh, the, uh, the other bit is, uh, uh <clears throat> since there's so many division officers, kind of the, the leadership aspect of the division officer's role can be diminished because you might not, you know, it's not just you and the chief, it's you, the new ensign, and the assistant to the ensign, who are all there in the division together, and you're all, you're, you know, the, the big selling point for becoming a SWO as a midshipman is, hey, you'll get the lead sailors from the first day, and you're going to be a part of the ship, and you're going to do great things, and you're going to help the team be effective uh, and go off and, you know, go off alone and unafraid to be, be a part of this this great ship. But if there's three officers running yes, that sir, division you know, three instead ship, of you know, one. Yes, right. sir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just like... Yeah. Uh, takes away some of that uh, empowerment, right? Yeah, you know, you got a damage control. A question about pay for you. Um, right <laughs> now I'm, I'm, uh, I'm editing a piece that will be in the November issue by a lieutenant. He's an aviator, but he's talking about retention among, uh, you know, junior aviators. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the things he talks about is uh, better targeting the uh, incentive pay, right, and putting incentive pay – you know, his argument is that the Navy right now, a lot of the incentive or bonus pay is taken by people that were going to stay in the Navy anyway. Um, and a lot of the, the top talent doesn't stay, um, but the Navy pays attention to the percentage of officers that stay rather than the percentage of the most qualified and most talented officers who stay, right? Uh, so his point is, you know, you really should make the incentive pays for those really hard jobs or the difficult places or the difficult positions, um, sea duty deployments, back-to-back -back deployments, those kinds of things, you have to target that and make it more uh, of a differential. So I'm, I'm curious what your thought is on, you know, what kind of bonus was offered to you and your year group um, to come, to stay in as a department head? Uh, did that make a difference for you? And is there a way to tweak the system that would, um, uh, you know, make that more effective at keeping the best officers? Yes, sir. Uh, so the first, <clears throat> uh, they offered something called the, I think it's the career retention skills bonus for SWO. Essentially, you sign up to be a SWO department head, yep. and they give you a little bit extra money. Uh, that has since changed, and I think this is to the, to the, to the, to the benefit of the SWO community. So that the previous PERS 41 had an initiative where if you selected, uh, <clears throat> if you selected, if you were screened for a department head in your first look, then you were eligible for a larger bonus than if you didn't. So as a way to promote essentially what you're getting at. Uh, so notionally, the, the better officers or the higher percentile would, officers would screen, would earlier, screen earlier. So and they would get a bigger bonus. They would, have, they would be eligible for a larger bonus. Now you had okay. to sign up earlier, right? So it's pretty much as soon as you screen as a JG, you would have to agree to be a SWO department head, but they were enticing you with more money. Got it. I think, I mean, it's a challenging question, right? So get, if you're going to tie financial incentives to performance, and we kind of have a, I don't know, abstruse performance evaluation system, how do you equitably reward the high performers? Uh, so it's a challenge. 
the <clears throat> I, I'm no I'm not a Manning expert, and I know there's a lot of moving pieces with Revolved getting people to the right places at the right time and career timing, etc. Do I think, I think you have to have the right mindset, right? Because you're on the ship and you maybe judge yourself relative to your peers and you, you know, you're there working long hours and they're going home early and everyone's paycheck's the same, right? Uh, there's, I don't think there's a whole lot of businesses that operate on a completely, I mean, it's a government job, right? But uh, that don't try to reward in the short term, you know, financially high performance. Now, I, I do agree uh the incentives a lot of times that are put out might not necessarily target the folks who are going to leave anyway. And so if you're going to judge it by, like, so in my case, I was going to stay in the Navy because, you know, I'm probably not going to be a model. I don't have my looks or anything. I got it. Oh, you come know. on. <laughs> now you've been on got, the proceedings got, podcast. Got a Your family, phone's going to be ringing got a, off the hook. You know, got a family to support. Do you have an agent? Uh, you better no, get no, one. Sir, no, there you go. Uh, so I was going to stick around. So honestly, the bonus for me wasn't the, the, the big deal. Right. Uh, I'm not going to say no to it, obviously. Right. So that so that bonus retained an officer in your case who was going to stay anyway. Yes, sir. So if there had not been a bonus, I would have stayed. Now the corollary to that is, right? You know, sometimes you talk about driving a hard deal with your detailer. You say, Oh, I'm getting out. Even though you know you're not gonna get out. Yeah. It's like, oh, don't get out, we'll send you to grad school or we'll give you this, that, and cushy job. So it's almost like I think it'd be it could cause some angst if the system was set up so that you had to kind of play hardball with the service uh, to get the most out of it. So yeah. it's kind of a complicated you know, it is, com- and the other yeah. thing that comes all the, to bear. All these things are complicated. Yeah. Well, yeah. the other thing that comes to bear is the lag between identifying that there a certain community is undermanned. So there's that discovery, and then the movement of monies to create a bonus. So that's that's like a 24 month minimum process. So depending on how this bow wave is ebbing and flowing, um, you may, as you said from the outset. You may be um, solving a problem that's solved itself, potentially, or throwing good money at guys who are going to stay in any way. You know, I got the bonus when I was a Rio um, between, I think it was year six to year 13. Um, and it, it, they did it to make the Rio community kind of feel good because pilots had bonuses. And we're like, hey, this is hurting the Rio morale. But let's be honest. We weren't fleeing to the airlines. Right. I mean, we were Rios. We weren't pilots. We, right. we didn't have the mad skills. That United, were United wasn't, trend. wasn't no, Rios. believe it or not. Right. United didn't have F-14s and Ognide radars and, and whatever else. And, and so um, it made me feel good. But just like you, I was not going to get out. I would stay anyway. But they gave me the bonus and I took it. Yes, sir. Right. You'd be foolish not to do that. Right. You know, um, you know, you also one of your paragraphs is called timing is everything. Right. And so. Some you you did talk, speak to some of this where you know there are some inherencies. So if you come aboard a ship when it's in a, an availability period, your job is not underway. Your job is keeping your sailors out of jail or keeping them from getting beat up as they walk to work in Portsmouth or whatever, right? And keeping those those maintenance issues that need to be attended to on track. You know, that's a positive. Make, that's a positive way to look a, at it. That's, but that, that, but that, it's that. True. I mean that's come out a lot. Is that you know you need to you need to be able to. Uh, enforce discipline on the maintenance that's being done on your ship, on the systems in your in your division or department. Yeah, and, and that's a different skill set, right? So we pride ourselves as officers as being renaissance men, right? We can, you know, um, cook the food. We can fix aft steering. We can entertain the crew with a few licks on a banjo. I mean, whatever is required, we will do. 
But there is a core competency associated with being able to steer a ship and keep a ship in a sea lane and not hit other ships. And I, I've never heard it put like you just did about the 13-year lag between you know the JO tour and when you get to be a CO. And depending on what you've done in the meantime, you know maybe you're a you know a think tanker or a fellowship guy or join anointed with something that had nothing to do with going to sea. Um, as you've suggested, there's a v variation in skill sets there that, you know, potentially could be an issue, you know. Well, we, I think we talked about that. I know it's been in proceedings, and I think it was uh, John Cordell, uh, Captain Retired, who wrote about revisiting the XO Fleet Up uh, program. So right now in the surface community, uh, you know, you get screened for XOCO, you leave your department head tour, usually as a junior lieutenant commander, and you won't go back to sea again until you go to your XOCO tour. And for some guys, that's as, as long as seven years. Uh, and they did that, you know, for some good reasons. The Navy was not promoting enough people to uh, flag level. Um, and partly was, uh, part, part of the reason for it was that there weren't enough people that had all the education and joint requirements met to be promotable to flag. And so by freeing up that time, you could go to uh, professional med military education, get your PME, JPME 1, JPME 2, do a three-year joint tour. Uh, so that's kind of like four or five years. Uh, and then, you know, maybe you had a, a payback tour on a Navy staff, pack fleet, uh, fleet forces command, a joint staff kind of thing. Um, and, you know, you screen for XOCO and you go back to sea. So at a minimum, it, that tended to be about four years. So four years, you know, for a pilot out of the cockpit for a SWO, uh, you know, away from uh, Hayes Gray and underway. Um, but some guys, it was, you know, as long as seven years. That's a long time that for to let those skills, you know, atrophy. Uh, so, you know, Corda was writing about, hey, we probably need to revisit that idea that we have this long uh, period between department head and, and XOCO um, because, you know, nowhere else in the maritime industry does a captain of a ship Coast Guard, you know, maritime, uh, you, you know, uh, nobody else takes that w that long away from driving ships and you know maintaining their navigational currency, and and probably the Navy shouldn't either. Uh, but it's one of the things that I know, um, you know, seniors are looking at. So uh, back to you, uh, Brendan. Um, you're now working resourcing issues for the surface community at the you know at the Pentagon. Uh, don't want to give you, you know, put you in a, a position to, a, you know, uh, answer officially, but I'm, I'm guessing that among your counterparts, among your colleagues, your, um, you know, your classmates, um, there's got to be discussions about, you know, hey, what kinds of things can be done now and what kinds of things have to be done in the long term to sort of uh, fix the, you know, the maintenance trough that the surface community is is in or the training trough or the personnel. We talked about, about personnel a bit. What are some of the other things that are being discussed? Yes, sir. Uh, <clears throat> so, honestly, that's all been pretty. It's a, it's it's definitely uh, sobering for the surface community. It hits you in the gut. Uh, I believe I mentioned it last week, but Captain Iyer had the article where he mentioned, you know, everyone's been up on the bridge, and there's been an uneasy situation that could have gone wrong. And for the vast majority of you know folks, it doesn't. Uh, now, whether that's through luck or through you know outstanding seamanship, uh, you know, who's to say? Uh, so to that point, do you feel like you normally had enough sleep? <laughs> uh, you know, because uh, yeah. we're we're hooting on the surface community for 
bragging about how little sleep they have. Yes, sir. You know, that's what kept me from going swell, I know, among I, other things. But uh, I know, There were some long days, but it was... I know, but do you feel like it was, you were... Could, like, I, could if... Impaired. No, sir. Not on a okay. consistent basis. There were times when but I was But did on the, the command climates sort of compel you to sleep? So we were talking to some Australian <laughs> mids yesterday um, who were in, in town, um, cool guys. And what did they call their thing? Their sleep logger. They had some sort of wow. thing that they're going to... Um, I mean, it's like this real deliberate tracking of sleep aboard the ship that so when, we don't do. Yes, sir. Right? When I was coming up, I saw a chain of command that didn't really care. And then I saw multiple chains of command that did try to organize the day uh, so that you could promote people getting rest. But even, I mean, so <clears throat> even with the ideal situation, there's going to be, and I don't, I, I think we shouldn't go overboard. You know, at the end of the day, we're there to serve and we're there to get the mission done. Um, so some days you'll won't get a lot of sleep and you'll have to wake up and then uh, so naval service forces has has directed every ship to move towards a circadian watch bill by the first of december i think it is or early yes, december sir, this year some right? here so, shortly uh you know as a swell what do you think about that and will that would that make a difference on the ships that you would served on it, did you ever serve on it, a ship it, that it depends that? uh it depends so <clears throat> it can either be much much better or it can actually be a lot worse hmm. uh so you have to get the whole because the day or the ship has a notional day, right? So you have meetings you do every day. You got quarters that you know you meet your sailors every day. Uh, there's outside meetings you're operating with the strike group. So you know the the, stat, the the ship is responsible for some kind of products that you know usually as an officer you might have some input into. Uh, you have to bound the working day of the ship in addition to having a circadian watch bill. So if you you know the typical rotation would say uh, you know two three hour watches a day. So you might have watch from midnight to three and noon to three. Uh, if they let you sleep in past seven, like if quarters is at seven and the expectation is all divos are up at seven for quarters, that means you, you went to sleep at 3.30 after watch. You have to get up three hours later to shower and eat before quarters, work all day, uh, get done at seven, eight, nine, sleep before, you have to get up at 11 for your midnight watch. So, that, you know, even though, oh, hey, you got all this time off, you don't really have all that time off because the, 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 the work day demands are still significant. So that guy's only getting four or five hours of sleep a day forever, and that's terrible. Okay. On the, the, the circadian watch bill doesn't change that? Well, potentially. So that's what I'm, so the, the, one of the ships I was on, they didn't change their work day and kind of the operational schedule of the ship to coincide with the circadian watch bill. And it was actually worse because even the, the traditional okay. method, every two or three days, you would definitely have 15 hours off. And so even if you want to get that much sleep for day, you know, day one and two, day three, and I don't think that, I think, I think you can't catch up, but you felt like you could catch up. Uh, if the, if the ship buys into kind of bounding the workday between like nine and 1800 or something like that and fits everything they're going to do within that time frame, then it's way better. And gotcha. so, uh, again, that's operationally dependent. The ship's got to do what they got to do. Uh, but I'd be, unless there's that buy-in, it has the potential, I think, to be, you know, equally, if not worse, Equally bad, if not worse, than the traditional way of doing it. So there's no easy answers, and you know, like you're talking. Right, about. right. The, yeah. These are complicated issues. No easy answers, and uh, you know, as you said, uh, you, there can be top-down direction, which we're seeing now in, in some of these all nav or all surf for uh, messages. Um, but uh, depending on how you know individual commands decide to uh, you know integrate those those uh, directions into how they handle their command. Yes, sir. You know, the proof is in the pudding, right? But if well, I, uh, if, go ahead. If I may, I will say that in general, uh, 
to talk up the SWO community. Even when I was there, they recognized that it's important to sleep. And so uh, there was a conscious effort. You know, it's not like a pilot unit mandated your eight hours or whatever. But if you were starting to drag a little bit, it wasn't like, oh, hey, suck it up. It was, hey, maybe you should hit the rack for a little bit. And that's then, good. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll that's, pick, that's we'll pick up the That's a culture change. Yes, sir. Well, in the squadron, we used to say eight hours a day and whatever you get at night is gravy. <laughs> and there you go. So that, that's a good rule for all, all forces and regardless of warfare especially. So I think, Bill, you would agree the bar is set very high for our in-studio guests. Brendan, thanks for wandering from uh, the Pentagon over here to uh, to Annapolis on Definitely. this dreary nice, day. Nice work. Great, yeah. great and, to hear from a for, uh, active duty J.O. who is writing for proceedings. That's the, what awesome. I was going to say, a, a guy who's very active in the forum. Fantastic. Um, so we'll see everybody back here on Facebook this time next week for the Facebook Live stuff. And catch us uh, for the Proceedings Podcast on our social media channels and also at usni.org. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. Thanks.